you know, we want to welcome everybody here. Everything all at once? Everything all at once. It's honestly a sensation. Aliens listen to it. Welcome, Doc Neal. Thank you. How do I say your last name? Zepkowski or Zepkowski? Zepkowski. No R. The R is silent. The R is silent. I always tell people the R is silent like the P in swimming. People go, hmm. The P in... Oh, (laughs) I got you. That took me a minute there. I get you. Very nice. Well, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Um, We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. We have Doc Neal with us, and he has been a friend of mine for almost five years now. That's what Shannon counted it out to. when I started coming to the Sundance that's on your land. Right, that's right. We're glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And I'm really interested. I've heard like bits and pieces of how you got into where you're at now. And I am very excited to hear the full story, hopefully, today. All right. Um, so you are a psychic slash medium slash water pourer slash sun dancer no i don't dance okay the day an owl poops on my head will be the day i sun dance <laughs> i watch i lend my land for the dance i know the ceremony song so i'd sing at the drum but dancing it's for the younger people <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean four days is a tough challenge yeah no food no water and also a md doctor an md that's right doc neil that's right so and I'm a reverend as well. So. <laughs> if anybody needs to get married or medical treatment, you're the man. I'm a family doctor, so let's see. We could uh, care for people from egg and sperm to ant and worm. So <laughs> funerals and marriages. Nice. So I and birth and baptize them, marry them, and bury them with what, all my credentials. <laughs> Absolutely. So being a doctor is a really difficult task. It can be if you want it to be. I feel like it's a hard road to get there. It definitely is a hard road to get there. It takes a special breed. And it takes a long time. Yeah, it takes patience. When did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Um, I did not know until I was probably a junior, sophomore, yeah, sophomore in college. Actually, second year of college. I went to be an electronics engineer. Okay. I'm a ham radio, I was a ham radio operator, so I loved electronics. This cool. kind of stuff is cool. Yeah. And uh, I had a ham radio, and I thought, well, I'm going to be an electronics engineer. So I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute for engineering and realized... That's up in Rochester. Very good yeah, school. Actually, it's... Uh, Rensselaer is in Troy, New York. Okay. You're thinking of... Yeah, RIT. RIT. I had a couple friends. Yeah. One went to Rensselaer and one went to RIT. Yeah, RIT. My brother and I actually started at RPI. My brother's a year younger than me. He ended up at RIT and I stayed at RPI. So. Cool. So, uh, but I realized how much I really hated math and I couldn't see myself as an electronics engineer, so I maybe thought environmental engineer would be better, less math, and then I really hated math, and I thought, you know what? <laughs> Absolutely not. When I, was in, when I was in high school, my absolute favorite subject and teacher was in biology, so I thought, you know what? I love biology. I'll be a biology major and either, either end up as a maybe a, a biology teacher or a forest ranger, because I love the outdoors sure. as well. Mm-hmm. And at RPI, all of the bio majors, because they changed majors from engineering to biology, they were all pre-meds. And mm-hmm. I thought, they're all, they're all pre-meds. And I, never, I 
my mother's a nurse, and it crossed my mind medicine, but I thought you needed three things to get into medical school, connections, um, brains, and money, yeah. okay? And, th and these pre-meds, some of them had no connections, no brains, no money, and I could not imagine <laughs> them as my doctor. So I thought, you know what? I'll try and get there first. If I get there first, great. <laughs> now, that weaves into the stories of mediumship, the very, very first reading I ever got when I was in high school at Lilydale, which is a big spiritualist so you, community. So you're from the area that you live now? I'm from Dunkirk, born and raised in Dunkirk, New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, when I was in high school, actually, before I went to high school, in grade school, my father used to take us fishing on Lake Erie or on Casadega Lake, which sure. Lilydale is part of the lake. So we would be driving past Lilydale or rowing past Lilydale on the boat and fishing. And he'd go, I go, what's that little community over there? He says, oh, that's Lilydale. They're all nuts, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so of course, in high school, I had to go check it yeah, out. Yeah, right, right, right. Dad says no. Yeah. Have to. Absolutely. So I went to Lilydale and my first reading there was with a guy, uh, Tom Bartlett was his name. I just, as a high schooler, walked in and, mm -hmm. you know, he gave us the high schooler discount. Back then it was five bucks for a little reading. And he brought through my uncle, Frank, by name, by description. And, you know, as a high schooler, you don't know that many people in, in the spirit world, but he came through very evidential. And I thought, how did that guy do that? He's got to have a cool trick. Right. But one of the things he said during the reading was that in my future, he saw me as a doctor, which I really never thought of until that seed was planted. So that was in my mind, even though I thought, yeah, I don't, you know, this. I, I don't have the money, the brains, or the connections, or, or the money to be a doctor, So, I, I, but I like engineering. I'm a ham radio operator. I'll go for that. Yeah. And I really didn't seriously consider it until I switched majors to biology. Absolutely. And uh, what was your like family? So your dad wasn't really into the spiritual stuff back uh, then? Well, yeah. My, my family, they're traditional Polish Catholics, you know? So okay. I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic grade school um, and then went to public high school. But, you know, I, as a Catholic in grade school, you know, we went to mass every day before class and all that stuff. So, so they were pretty much traditional Polish Catholics. So uh, I remember... Uh, being interested, actually, after that reading with my Uncle Frank and I was in high school, when I, I said, this is so cool, it's either a trick. Yeah, and if it's a trick, it's a good trick. It's a good trick, mm -hmm. and I want to learn it. And if I can't learn it, and he's a human being giving me this message, I should be able to learn how to do this right. and prove it to myself or else learn the trick, because I thought it was so cool. Besides, you know, I figured... First of all, as a Catholic, I was taught, you know, you, you pray to the saints, and the saints have passed on, and they'll come and listen to you. Mm -hmm. But my Uncle Frank was no saint, and this guy that was reading me was not a Catholic. So I thought, well, he, if, he can, if he can do it, I can do it. Right. So when I was in college, I started going to a spiritualist church and started classes. Uh, the first year in college, uh, I, was, I missed the beginning of class. So I wait wait till I was a second year in college. Second year in college, I started studying spiritualism and psychic unfoldment and mediumship, and I thought, well, this is interesting, you know, mm -hmm. but, and people were getting messages, 
and I wasn't getting anything, so I thought, I don't know. There were 43 people in the class, so they had to divide it in two because it was so popular. Was it a class offered in a class offered by the college? No, the church, the spiritualist church I okay. went to. So, so I found a spiritualist church in Albany. I, I lived in Troy, so I would take the bus because I didn't have a car. Take the bus over to Albany on Sundays and be amazed with some of the messages. And so I thought, I got to go to class. So second year in college, I went to class, and. Uh, 43 people learned some interesting stuff in the first year, but I didn't get anything, no, no psychic revelations that I was aware of. So I said, well, I'm going to stick with this on the second year. And the second year went from 43 down to 20. And I thought, I, my first thought was, they're weeding us out. There is a trick. And we just have to stick stay with long it. Enough. Yeah, stay yeah. long enough. Stay long enough. And that, that was my first thought. And, and then in the middle of that year, we were asked to get up and give messages for the third year class, which was a year ahead of us. And I'm going, when it was my turn, the class was down at this little bitty church down in the basement, and we would sit, we would, we would have like an hour of teaching and then an hour of just sitting in the dark and sharing messages. And no, nobody gave me the trick, and it was my turn to get up and give messages upstairs in the church on the pulpit, and I'm going, you know, nobody told me how to do this, you right. know? So, the first aha experience I had with psychic awareness was I got up there, <laughs> looked around, and this woman scratched her head say that, I want to talk to you. And when spirits work with you, they don't give you a whole message. It sounds like they do, but experienced mediums know how to link little tidbits of information together. So the first tidbit of information I got was, first of all, she scratched her head, so I wanted to talk to her. As I looked at her, for some reason, a flash of memory came, because in college we used to drive nonstop from, from RPI down to Key West, three to oh, six cool. hours, and we'd, we'd take turns driving, you know, and just roll out in the sand and get burned in the first 15 minutes that we were there. But anyway, <laughs> about three in the morning when we did this, we would pass through Washington, D.C., and, and back then at three in the morning, it was much quicker to go right through Washington downtown than around the Beltway. Mm -hmm. So 3 o'clock, I had this memory of doing that, and at 3 a.m. we would pass through the Capitol building, which was all lit up with lights. So as I looked at her, this memory flashed. I say, and it was above her head, because I was looking at her, just scratching her head. I thought, well, on your mind is Washington, D.C., because I saw this Capitol building. And then out of the blue, I, I got the next snippet of memory of my brother playing with Army guys. So I said, there's somebody in the Army in Washington, D.C. It's on your mind. You must be worried about him. I think you have a son in the Army in Washington, D.C., and you're really worried about him. She says, exactly. And I'm going, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> you did it. That happened. Success. Nobody <laughs> told me. That's cool. You know, it had nothing to do with spirit identification or anything. It had to do with psychic awareness, like a download into your mind and how it works mm -hmm. that way, just in little snippets. And you don't get the next piece of information until you give the first piece out. So that was my first aha experience on how this works. It's not really a trick. It's just awareness and trust that this crazy stuff coming into your mind is the message. Real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I still am amazed at one little. I mean, I think, how does this work? And I still wonder because I can do this. I used to do a lot of readings. I've sort of retired from that as well, you know. But I remember in Lilydale, we have there's a there's two outdoor services where people who are in Lilydale can go for free outdoors to either Forest Temple or what's called the Stump. And 
there, the mediums can get up and give like a, a we call it a, a, a greeting, not a reading. They give a quick snippet of information to a person and then they'll give to maybe a minute message to one person then in another and then another and then the next medium gets up so during a whole hour you can see maybe 10 different mediums and their style getting up and giving messages and get a feel for what speaks to you or how accurate they are and things like that so I'll never this is I don't know how they do this but an example I was up at Forest Temple, I gave two messages, and then, you know, as you give the messages, you get the, the next little clip. So after the second message, I had one left, I, and I heard in my mind's ear, I guess, just like if I told you jingle bells, you could almost hear jingle bells, but sure. not out here. So I heard, there's Julia in the audience, ask where she is. So I said, where's Julia? And when one, one person raised her hand, she was Julia. That was the first snippet. So I said, okay, Julia, I'm drawn to you for some reason. As soon as I looked at her, I felt a man, her contemporary, a male, her contemporary, who was in the spirit world already, and she was in her probably 30s. And I felt it was like recent, like within less than a year. So I said, there's a, there's a man who wants to say hello to you, passed less than a year ago. And I felt a closeness with her. You know, I thought, he's really close to you. He wants to get to you. And so, and then I didn't wait for the next snippet of information. I made an assumption. So I said to her, did you lose a brother in spirit recently? And she said, because I felt that connection. She said, no, my husband. And I'm going, oh, my God. Uh -huh. So I go like that. I, look at the, I, I sort of look at him in my mind's eye, and he's going like this. So I said, yeah, this is your husband. He's saying yes. And, of course, you know, you can say, oh, yeah, you just made that up and you went to yeah. make it fit. Mm -hmm. But then he puts in my head, she just came from a private half-hour reading, and he wasn't able to get through. So I told her, yeah, he's here. I said, but you just had a half-hour reading with a medium, and he wasn't able to come through to you. She said, that's right. So then he tells me, well, he just got over to the other side, and he didn't know how to do this, and through me, he's learning. So I said, he says, the next time you go for a private reading, he'll come through. He's learning how to do this now. Then he tells me, he puts this in my mind, he says, tell her she has my pants. And I'm going, oh, this is a, this is a public service, and of course she right. has your pants. You just died. She probably hasn't even em emptied your dresser mm -hmm. yet. No, no, tell her she has my pants. <laughs> so I say, okay, because you have to trust, and this is stupid, you know, it comes into your mind. I said, well, he, wants to, he wants to tell you you have his pants. And she goes, I sure do. I'm wearing them. Wow. <laughs> the whole crowd went, oh, my God. Wow. I mean, how do you know that stuff? And I'm still like, oh, that's pretty cool. Do that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's how mediumship works in a way, too, to bring through little tidbits and you line them up. So, it, I mean, you're getting sound bites. Mm -hmm. But it, as you're giving the message, you're putting it together. And, and a, an experienced medium knows how to put it together to sound like it, he knows what he's talking about all the way through. But in fact, you have to wait for the next, next little tidbit of information. Mm -hmm. So when you, uh, like you said, you like you made the assumption during that and you just got the relationship wrong. Is it, yeah. Do you remember, is there ever times where just like the snippets you get are just not correct like with the, with the person you're you're trying to reach yes that that can happen occasionally it's very interesting i had one woman come and 
you know when the spirit wants to talk to somebody. You just got a feeling. So with her, I gave the names, the, the relationship. She didn't relate to any of it. So I thought, well, I'm on the wrong channel here mm -hmm. somehow. So I recommended another medium to go to. And so she went to her, and this medium calls me back and said, yeah, that person you referred me. I got all these spirits. She didn't place any of them. I thought, well, that's interesting. So a few years later, I was doing readings at my house, and uh, this woman comes in, and same thing. I'm getting the spirits. Nothing happens. She said, yeah, I tried you a few years ago, and the same thing happened. <laughs> I said, why did you come back? <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, OK, so, and I don't know. Still, I'm puzzled why I was getting clear signals, but she didn't place any of it. Mm -hmm. So she, I don't know why, but so, it, it does happen. Do you think it's just like a, a feeling sometimes? Because I feel like my consciousness a lot of times will send me little messages. How do you mm -hmm. differentiate from spirit or just you? Is there a certain feeling you get when you do it? Yes. Although I have to say when you're talking with spirit, it feels like you're making it up. Mm -hmm. But it comes out of the blue. Like I, I mean, I, you know, the last thing in my mind was the, was the dome of the Capitol at 3 a.m. going down to Florida when I was talking in church, you know. But right. suddenly it pops in your mind. And so you kind of know it's for them and it's not your own guidance. Although, you know, we all have spirit guardian angels or guides or whatever and or or natives or, mm -hmm. or helpers. Ancestors. Ancestors. And they work with you and they'll put those little downloads into your mind as well. Or if you get your own ambitions, they'll encourage it or give you little pointers in indirect ways of, of how to go about getting the goal that you have. So yeah. Um, and sometimes it is hard to tell the difference, but you know, it's all we're all one in a way. Right. So yeah. this must have been very interesting for you as a college student in the engineering field. I would imagine. Well, raised Catholic, so you probably have some sort of belief system in a higher power. Yeah. But still very grounded in reality and what you can touch and see and feel here. Yeah, I mean, you know, the skeptic in me said, you can't give messages, you know, you're not a saint and, you know, these people, you know, they're making this stuff up or they got a good trick. But if I can do it, that to myself proves to me, not maybe anybody else, but it proves to me, number one, there is a realm far beyond the physical, which we have little understanding of, beyond logic. and. And it's real. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not real in our logical, rational sense, to me, I know it's real. Because I know how this, you know, I've, I've experienced it. Crazy stuff. I, I have a friend who tells this story all the time, but I'm going to repeat it on here just for our own benefit. Um, he talks about if we had a time machine and we brought... George Washington or Ben Franklin or whoever back to this age and you turn on a light switch, you're not going to be able to understand yeah. or they're not going to be able to understand or know why the light switch is turning on, but they're going to eventually realize and take it as fact that when they turn that switch, the light is going to come on. Yeah. And I think that relates a lot to what you're sharing right now in that um, you may not have had that belief system, but eventually, through your own evidence, you've yeah. seen that it's real. Yeah, it, it's experiential. It's it's amazing. And then the next step, okay, so that's through your mind. Somehow, telepathy or communication from an unseen realm is coming through. It's interesting. I I do. A, I still sit for psychic development with with three women in um, Buffalo, 
every Monday. So I was there this past Monday, and I'm sitting, and I hadn't thought of Mahatma Gandhi in years. Mm -hmm. As I'm sitting there, one of the people was in the cabinet, and I said, you know, I said, I feel the energy of Mahatma Gandhi around you. She says, that's interesting. She says, I was just reading and thinking about him yesterday night, and today is the anniversary of his death. Oh. So Monday was the anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi's death. So everybody was thinking of him. I was probably picking up, you know, universal vibrations of Mahatma Gandhi because it was the anniversary of his, his right. assassination. And I didn't even know that until I shared that, you know. Absolutely. That's super interesting. It, that just made me think, and this is kind of silly, but but when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. The last couple of days, I've had this, I'm a huge uh, fan of like 60s music, you know. Yeah. And uh, the last couple of days, I've just had like this strong inclination to listen to Strawberry Fields Forever. It's one of my favorite songs. I don't listen to it all the time, though. Yeah. And then I just kind of came across yesterday that, and I didn't know this, that Yesterday was the day that they recorded the music video for it, and it's it's just like a weird yeah. thing like that, you know. It's you know it's the universal consciousness that that is amplified on certain times and days, mm-hmm. and it just hits you. So you're open to it. Yeah, we all have that gift. It's this that we deny it because we haven't been taught about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and uh, getting back to to college, and you're going through these classes. You're also switched your major to biology, so you're learning a lot more and thinking about becoming a doctor. Yeah, and actually when I was in the psychic development classes, I went to a a medium who trained the medium that was training our class Mm -hmm. for a reading, and he said, yeah, he says, you're going to end up as a doctor. So he sort of verified my first reading. Right. And he said, you're going to end up at Syracuse, Upstate Medical Center, Syracuse, to study in medical school. Okay. So, uh, so I thought, well, you know, if, it's, if I'm going to be a doctor, that's nice. I mean, this reading, I, I didn't hang my hat on it, but it was interesting reading. So in my senior year of college, and I took the entrance exams for medical school, and, and you can apply. Back then, very competitive to get into medical school. You had to have like a 3.8 or a 4.0 OQM and, uh, you know, all kinds of different things. High so entrance exam scores, yeah, all yeah. that stuff. So I didn't do too bad on the entrance exam, but I had a 3.4, which became a 3.6. And uh, most people were applying to 20 schools in order to get a chance to get in. But I thought, well, you know, if it's meant to be, I'll apply to six, which you're allowed to with the exams, and then you have to pay more. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, well, and I, I tried four schools in, the, in New York State, Buffalo, Syracuse, uh, downstate, and one more, and then a couple out-of-state schools. And I applied to them, and I told my biology friends, you know, I was going to apply to medical school and he said how many did you apply for I said six six you'll never get I applied to 20 and what's your cue I said three four and then it became a three six oh my god you won't get in it's three eights and four o's that get you in you know I'm okay well then I'll just be a forest ranger or a biology teacher or maybe even a chiropractor because by then I was kind of interested in medical stuff kind of alternative medical stuff so so anyway I applied to six medical schools and I got interviewed actually at Syracuse and Buffalo. So my first interview was Syracuse. A biostatician, remember I hate math, that's why I switched. Mm -hmm. Biostatician interviewed me and a pediatrician. I could tell right off the bat the pediatrician from the get-go 
made his judgment in the first few seconds, he hated me. I could tell it just went very badly. Mm -hmm. And the biostatistician loved me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Even though I hated wow. math. So it was like, oh, I blew that. So, so I, went <laughs> to, um, I went to Buffalo, and the dean of students there was my interviewer. And he says, you know, why do you, go on, why do you want to go into medical school? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I'm a ham radio operator. I wanted to go into <laughs> electronic engineering. I love biology. I realized how much I hated math. I switched to become a biology teacher, a forest ranger. But everybody at RPI was pre-med, and I couldn't envision any of them as my doctor. So I thought, by golly, I'll see if I can get there first. He says, that's an interesting answer. Nobody's ever said that to me. You're, you're in. <laughs> nice. So I thought, good. I got into medical school in right. Buffalo. So I sent my de tuition deposit into Buffalo. Then I get a letter from Syracuse. Dean of Students wants to talk to me. I'm going, what the heck? There's 20 applicants for every place in, in medical school. Why is he wanting to talk to me again? Because mm -hmm. I blew the interview. So I went, just out of curiosity, went back there. Because I loved Syracuse when I w was there. And I said to the dean, I said, you know, it's interesting you want to see me again, but I said, you know, I blew the first interview. One guy hated me and the other guy loved me. He said, exactly. I couldn't believe it. It was so different. I had to meet you myself. And I said, well, I've already sent my tuition deposit into Buffalo because I was connected there. And he goes, you've been accepted to another school? <laughs> yeah. He said, well, in that case, if you'd rather come here, you're welcome. So I did end up in Syracuse <laughs> nice. last minute. That's how spirit plays chicken with your readings. Right. <laughs> Puts you to the test. Yeah, I mean, and I wasn't, I wasn't depending on it. It just was interesting how it unfolded. Right, last minute. That's Amazing. funny that he he got that uh, that jealousy or whatever it was that was like, oh, you're, you're accepted somewhere else. Like, yeah, it's like, well, in that case, <laughs> yeah, I'd rather you, come here. But he found it intriguing the two different evaluations. So mm -hmm. you know, it was yeah, and that was predicted. That's good deanship, too, like seeing something like that, you know, taking the time to look at it and like, oh, zero stars for, from this person and then five from your other person. Yeah. Like, what is going, going on? on? Yeah, that's what he did. So it got me into medical school. And I ended up, you know, as a family doctor, I went, to, um, I went back to uh, residency in family practice, which was three years after medical school, and I ended up in Schenectady. New York, which is right near RPI and, and the whole area. And I was involved with the Spiritualist Church in Albany then, so I became re-involved and became the assistant pastor. Oh, cool. I finished uh, studying. During medical school, I finished five years of study with uh, Trinity Temple of the Holy Spirit, which is a Spiritualist Church, and got ordained. So I uh, graduated medical school in May of... Uh, 78 and I got my I was ordained in June of 78 so I'm a reverend doctor yeah that's nice that's yeah. all at once yeah yeah everything at once everything just like at once yeah exactly yeah <laughs> just a, like it's this been a great event great adventure so in metals, medical school was it like surreal for you or were there times where you wanted to stop or oh like yeah this wasn't it's a lot of work the worst rotation I remember in medical school was uh neurosurgery. You'd get up, it was in the winter, you'd get up at five in the morning to make your rounds with the doctors and then go into surgery and by the time you got home it was eight at night so you never saw daylight for mm -hmm. six weeks in the winter on a neurosurgery. It was just lots of time spent there and lots of time going, you've got to be nuts to do this. You right. Know? So, but we held in there through neurosurgery. <laughs> Spring came and it got better. I, I think that a lot of people that haven't experienced or seen somebody who's experienced like going through medical school don't 
I don't want to say they don't understand, but I think that when you when you see somebody else going through this, you get a higher degree of respect for what it takes to it make takes, it through that. It takes a lot, and then uh, it's interesting, you know. And and there's snobbism with, with the doctors and everything. I mean, I'm a family doctor. All right, that's what I wanted, and I had one of the surgeons called me and said, why do you want to be a family doctor? You'd be much better. And she was trying to get me to go into a specialty and everything. I said, no, you know, I, I, I don't, doesn't mean anything. So they tried to talk you into their own specialty or right. something else. And so I ended up as a family doctor and, you know, delivered kids and the whole bit. It was a lot of fun. Good. That's cool. And you're also progressing in your psychic awareness. Yes, in medical school. It's interesting how you can set a tone from what you're told by your superiors or, or mentors. Mm -hmm. So in orientation in medical school, I was in a group of four people who were mentored, you know, shown around the school and talked about medical school with a, with a second year who brought us around. And she said, you know, she said, medical school is tough, uh, but don't neglect other things. You know, there, you can study during the week, take the weekends off, you know, do something. Don't, don't make it your, your life's ambition for four years like a lot of people do. So my group of four, that's what we did. You know, I'd go camping or, you know, I, I went to psychic development classes during medical school. I continued to do that in the spiritualist churches. Other groups who, set, who had mentors who said, oh, you got to, you know, put your nose to the ground, you know, shoulder to the wheel and all that. You got to study a lot and, you know, just it's, it's your, your, your monastic life for the next four years in medical school. And that's exactly what they did. They said, how can you take weekends off? Because that's what they were trained. It's very interesting how you can steer a person. So, you know, so I had time in medical school to continue spiritual studies and, and, uh, and experience a lot of different things. Do you think that helped with your, with your studies? Yeah, I think it was more well-rounded. And, and What about with your patients? You know, yeah, I have a good bedside manner, I'm told. So <laughs> part of that comes from, you know, not, you know, having your, your life's only calling as a, as a doctor. I mean, some people were just so gung-ho and I got to make this patient live. If he dies, I fail and all this mm -hmm. stuff. And they would mm -hmm. over-treat, you know. And, I mean, when it's a person's time, it's a person's time. Let's be nice about it. Right. You know, right. So, uh, you know, that was my approach. So uh, every doctor is different. But, you know, I, I enjoy being a I enjoy, I'm retired now, but I enjoyed being a family doctor. I ended up as an HIV and AIDS specialist. I've been HIV positive myself since at least 1982. Probably. Thank you for sharing a, that with us. I know a that's uh, <laughs> a lot of people very much protect that status. No, actually, I was uh, the test by 1983. We knew that whatever was causing this was caused by blood and body fluids. So in 1983, 100 percent of the time, I would use gloves because a lot of times the patients would bleed all over you when you're trying to put an IV and everything. So we started using gloves 100 percent of the time in 1983, and I was a real slut back then, so I started, and I, I'm gay, so, you know, I was having sex with men, so I used condoms 100% of the time, once we knew, as soon as we knew, right. I put gloves, condoms. Now, doctors are not supposed to have sex with their patients, and I didn't, but some of the people who I had sex with in 81 and 79 became my patients, because they were Eventually, getting sick. Yeah. So I'm going, shoot, you know, I had unprotected sex with them, I don't know, you know, I feel okay. Um, but they 
ended up being some of my first patients who were dying of AIDS. And as a doctor, it's like very difficult to have somebody who used to be a friend, now your patient, and dying. And yeah. you have nothing to do that but give them emotional support. Right, so that was when that, AIDS was brand new, brand HIV new. and AIDS They was called it GRID. In 1981, it was called Gay-Related Immunodeficiency, GRID, until some straight um, IV drug users in New York got it, and then the hemophiliacs started getting it. So um, by 19, that was in 1983, we knew whatever it was was caused by blood and body fluids. By 1985, summer, the HIV antibody test was first available. So of course, the, the week it came out, I took it. And you have to, it was all confidential then, and you had to make a code and everything. So I, I drew my own blood, made the code, sent it off, along mm -hmm. with some of my patients, and came back positive. Now, during college, before AIDS was ever heard of in the 70s, remember I was going to psychic development classes, sure. yeah. and I felt I could get downloads of information from my spirit guides. We, have, we all have a spirit team of guard, guardian angels or guides, whatever you want to call them. So I asked them then, I said, and I'm 25, I said, how long will I live? I asked them that, and they said, 87. Okay. Sounds good. So now I'm 31 open up the envelope, see the test HIV positive, there's no medicine or anything, and my patients are not doing well. So I said to the spirits, I said, are you sure 87? <laughs> and they said, yeah, it still looks like 87. Well, at that time I had three more years at St. Clair's Catholic Hospital where I was working in Schenectady before I would get a, a pension, a little pension for working there as a resident. So I thought, okay. I'll finish that out just in case I live that long, because then I'll have a little bit of income from being working at St. Clair's. But just in case they're wrong, I'm out of here. Uh, uh, ten years in one day, that's it. So Gone. ten years in one day, I left. That must have been a very scary time. Oh, God, yes. I mean, it was. Um, and again, I have to credit my spirit guidance, because they sort of suggested alternative medicines to keep me going until there was good treatment out there. So um, so I, I, I was helped, oddly enough, by Barley Green. I, I came to Lily, I, I was associated with Lilydale as well. I bought a house there in 88. So I went there and they had what's called a mastermind group of meditators. So, so during the class of meditation, our teacher said, okay, now call your spirit team in and ask them a question. So I mentally called them in and I said, what do I need to do to get through with AIDS? And I got a vision, you know, the drop down memory of a field of grain blowing mm -hmm. in the wind, beautiful grain. And it looked, and, and if you look at grains, it's very hard to tell the difference between barley, rye, wheat, triticale. I mean, they're all look right. the same. Yeah, I, I know it wasn't. Out. I know it wasn't oats because oats looks different and rice looks different. So I thought, well, it's barley, wheat, triticale. What, what is this about? So then, as I asked that question, which grain it was, I saw in my mind's eye, I saw seven loaves of bread. Now. Being in development classes, I knew a little bit about the Bible, and of course, raised in a Catholic right. school. Right, seven, school. Has seven barley loaves. So there were seven barley loaves mentioned in the Bible, so I knew this grain was barley. Right. So I said, okay, I must be, 
you know, guided to eat barley. So I went shopping for barley, and I tried barley beef soup, and I really didn't like that much barley. And the only cereal back then that had enough barley and to be worth it was Kellogg's Mueslix, which isn't made anymore, so I bought that. Usually when spirit gives you important guidance, I have found that there is a emphasizer or a confirmation in some way that comes to you soon after you get the first guidance. So two weeks later, out of the blue, and I was living in Lilydale, I got this phone call. Her name was Kathy O'Judan. I'll still remember her name to this day. I never met her, never contacted her ever since, but Kathy O'Judan said, hey, I hear you have HIV. Now I was open about it. So I hear you have HIV. I said, yeah. She says, I want to tell you I'm a network marketer. I'm going, oh, God, network marketing, that's not something. Yeah. What do you got? What do you got? To, what is your product? She said, barley green. And I'm going, really? Barley green? Mm. So, so I didn't network market, but I ordered the stuff. So I was on barley green. And as I started it, a measure of your immune system back then, we didn't have viral loads or, you know, we had the antibody test, but you couldn't tell how much virus was in your body, but you could look at your T cells for your immune function, and mine were lowish, not AIDS range yet. So I started taking barley greens, my T cells went up. So I thought, mm. well, good, this is for me. And I tried it on a few of my patients. It worked for one of them. Most of them it didn't work for. So when you get a cure from spirit, it's usually directed just for you, you know? So I. Mm -hmm took my barley green and got through until the right medicines came along and you know I've been basically undetectable I mean with that viral load came out in the 90s and, and of course mine was high until I found the right medicine but by 2005 I got the right medicine I've been undetectable ever since in it's the fantastic. Past, it's in awesome, the past, yeah. yeah in the, the, the new medicines are really oh, effective so from what I to hear, take. too. There's no side effects, basically. And, you know, it's one, once a day you take your meds and that's it. Mm -hmm. So I've been undetectable since 2005. Stayed on, st still that way. Normal immune system functions, if you, if you look at my labs. And the other thing we know that is un, U equals U means undetectable equals untransmittable. They did a study of 60,000 uh, gay couples and straight couples, one of whom was, they're called serodiscordant. So one was positive and one was negative. And they looked at these people who were undetectable, looking for a transmission to the uninfected partner. Mm -hmm. They found three out of 60,000, and those three basically were not faithful and fooled around. So, you know, right. so that's how that happened. But so far, they, it's so. I don't know, cast in stone, proved, proven mm -hmm. that if you're undetectable, your chance of transmitting AIDS to someone else is almost nothing. Is, is almost nothing, even without unprotected sex. I wow. mean, with, with unprotected sex. So, you know, so, and now, if you're, if you're sexually active, straight or gay, um, and you're HIV negative, there's PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, right, yeah. so you can take that if you're sexually active. There's even PrEP on demand, because PrEP means, you know, you're really sexually active, you take something every day. PrEP on demand means, you know, you have a party coming up at the end of the month, you take your pills before oh, the party, <laughs> and a couple days after, and that's the end of that. And that works just as well. So it's like, oh my God, you know, so the fear of, of HIV is, is far less than it used to be. Exactly. A lot of stigma. Although, I, I lived through all that stigma and misunderstanding, and and uh, got kicked. Actually, when I came back to Dunkirk, remember I said, 
after 10 years in Schenectady at St. Clair's, that was it. I was yeah. out of there just in case. Did you have to hide your status from them? No, no. One of the first people I told at St. Clair's Hospital was our nurse epidemiologist. I said, look, you know, I'm HIV positive. She says, yeah, I know. Blood and body fluids. You're not going to go blood and body fluids with any patients. I'm not worried. I continued to deliver babies in awesome. the whole bed. I shared it with uh, my patients who I was close to. I shared that. Uh, however, after I went there and left 10 years in one day, so I had my little pension, um, I worked in the emergency rooms near Buffalo, and then I ended up in Dunkirk, in my local emergency room in Dunkirk, New York. And I worked there. First day I worked there, I told the emergency room director that I was HIV positive. Fine, you know, so I worked there almost a year. It was 90, 90 and 91. I, I, by the way, I left, first of all, I left St. Clair's, and then the spirit sort of guided me. You need to go either to work in an HIV clinic in Boston or Paris. I went, okay. So I went <laughs> Those to sound a, nice. Yeah. Very so I, different places. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I went to um, I went to an HIV conference, and there was a job posting for Boston Fenway Community Health Center. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll check that out. So I went there, and I said, you know, I heard there's a job posting. I'm a family doctor. I can do a lot of stuff. I'm HIV positive myself, so I'd be glad to care for patients like that. But I'll only be here for a year or two, so I'm not going to be a career guy with you. If you want me, fine. If not, you know, just know that I'm going to be out of here in a year or two. I just had the guidance I needed to check out Boston. So they took me. Mm -hmm. And a year and a half later, it was I just knew it was time to go, so I left. And then I went back to my hometown of Dunkirk, New York, which is an hour from here where we're living. And I worked in Brooks Hospital emergency room as an emergency room physician, kind of low stress because, you know, as a family doctor, you're on call for kids and, and all kinds of stuff. In the ER, you just work your 12-hour shift, and then you're off to rest, you know? Right. So, so I was doing that for a year, working there. And uh, the director of the ER comes to me after a year and says, you know, oh, after that, I had to reapply for privileges to work in the ER. Well, during that year, I had started AZT, which is one of the first HIV meds out. So on my reapplication, it says, are you on any medicine? I put yes. What do you want? HIV, why are you on AZT? Why are you on it? Because I'm HIV positive. Well, a, f a day later, the director of the ER says, hey, I talked to the president of the hospital. The board saw your reapplication. And the president called me and said, do you realize Dr. Zepkowski is HIV positive? He said, yeah, I know that from the day he started here. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? He said, it's confidential. Oh, so that, that was July of 91. The Center for Disease Control Under Pressure put out a statement that if you're an HIV positive healthcare worker, you can continue to care for patients as long as you don't infect them. Mm -hmm. And by infecting them, they said you have to come up with an exposure-prone procedure, which has a risk of infection. So the hospital calls me and says, well, we don't, we don't have any experience with HIV. You're the expert <laughs> yeah, in the create whole your area. Procedure. <laughs> so we need to meet with the Infectious Disease Control Committee to decide what you can and can't do as an emergency room doctor. I said, okay. So they said, we're going to meet Wednesday morning at the Sheraton Four Points down by Lake Erie. So be there. So I'm thinking, well, I can't think of any exposure-prone procedure unless there's an earthquake and I'm sewing somebody up and the needle slips through me and I bleed on them. I, I, just, I, I can't. But I went to the meeting, and, and it's, there was the president of the hospital, the lawyer, a couple of other big wigs of the hospital, and me. I said, where's the infection control committee? I thought we were meeting. 
we met without you. Here's 35 things you can't do in the wow. ER. We'll give you a choice. This is July of 91. You can either resign or we'll fire you. That was it. Mm. Just hit me like, surprise. Wow. Spirit didn't warn me. But in that moment, I had to make a decision. Would I resign or would I get fired? Now, through my, that was a, that was 91. So from 81 to 91, since AIDS was around, in the beginning, people used to talk about victims of AIDS. It drove us nuts. So we called ourselves people with AIDS, PWAs. And then we changed it because PWA means you're going to die of AIDS. So we called it PLWA, which is people living with AIDS. So, so I didn't want to be a victim. Now with the victim, I'll ask you guys what you think. We'll take a vote. Okay. So a victim would have one choice, and an empowered person would do something else. So if you, so you have a choice. You either get fired or you resign. What would the victim do? Resign. resign, yeah. I would think. No. The victim has no power over it. You're fired. That's it. You yeah. have no decision. That's mm -hmm. it. I guess so. That makes so sense. So you take power into yourself and say, I resign. Mm -hmm. Thinking, oh, God. You know? see, that that might be some of my own personal stuff, too, there, because I feel like yeah. I'm fighting the power by forcing them to do what they're going to do. They're going to do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So you, they said, they warned me ahead, you're either going to get fired or you can resign. Hmm. So yeah, I think, uh, I, think I uh, wouldn't like to give them the satisfaction. We're probably on the same wavelength with that. Yeah. 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 But, but if, you're, if you're fired, they take the power. Yeah, I, they I, have I totally the understand. Power. true. Yeah. You're fired. We have the power. Mm -hmm. No, I resign. I have the power. Mm -hmm. So that was a split-second decision that I made with the help of my spirit angel team. I think there were 40,000 of them that day. So I resigned. And then they said, okay, now that you've resigned, this is on a Wednesday, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, and it's confidential, we're going to send out a letter to the 4,200 patients you have oh seen God. since you started working here saying, you have been cared for by a worker, they didn't say male or female, a worker in the emergency room in the last year, and we want to offer you a test. That was the CYA policy of the hospital, cover your assets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I said, no, I said, you can't do this because you're putting everybody in the emergency room at suspicion that they're positive. You're going to make it hell for everybody in the that emergency room. You have to use my name. If you don't use my name, it looks like I'm hiding something because I haven't been. I've been open about HIV with mm -hmm. friends and family. So I said, you have to use my name. Oh, no, we can't. It's confidential. I said, you have to. So the lawyer was there, so he signed up a, he, he drew up a, a waiver of confidentiality so they'd use my name. Okay, now the letter's ready. They say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use your name. We'll send out this letter on Friday. People will get it, or Thursday or Friday. People will get it over the weekend. We want to offer them free testing on Monday. We're going to have a conference. We're going to have a press conference on Monday about this. And then, you know, we'll make, open the test for anybody that wants to get tested. Okay, I said, all right, that's okay. So I was very stressed. That would have been the very first year in my life that I would have, as a doctor, made over 100000 which is good for a doctor. Back good then, for anybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that went from 100000 to 20000 the next year because, you know, I was just working a couple of part-time clinics. Anyway. That whole situation, so, it really bothers me. 
personally. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, and I feel like a lot of, like, all of that is completely based off of ignorance. And it seems to me like you're, in your in experience, ignorance. the medical practitioners were all had, like, the education and the knowledge to understand that people weren't at risk with you treating them. Sure, but once the director you get, of the emergency room was fine, but once you get into the board of directors... Exactly, who don't know that yeah. stuff. Yeah. They're not doctors. Yeah, so it was like crazy. Actually, the state of New York, they called New York, and they said, you know, we're gonna, this is what we're going to do to Dr. Dr. Zepkowski, and the state recommended them not to do that because, you know, there's medical people right. on the state boards. But they did it anyway because of the policy at that time. It's wholly changed now, but that's how it was back then. So... I was really upset, so I thought, yeah, I, I got to get out of here. So I, I went, this is Wednesday, I said, I got to go somewhere, where because I, I love camping. I said, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to go to uh, Brushwood. Do you know Brushwood? I'm not familiar. Brushwood camp in no. Sherman, New York. Mm -mm. It's, a, it's a clothing optional uh, campground. Oh, cool. Where they had a pagan party called Starwood going on, so I thought, oh, <laughs> That sounds like a good time. Yeah, that sounds yeah. fun. <laughs> oh, it was, it was, I said, I gotta give something totally different. So I, I took, that day I left Lily down, I went to Starwood to camp out. So Thursday, they had booths, they had vendor booths on Thursday. So one of the people was selling Native American stuff, and of course I had a drum and was interested in Native American ceremonies. So I'm talking to Charlotte Herman, who had a booth there. And at noon on Thursday, all of a sudden, it was like somebody, we, back then we didn't have cell phones. Or, we had a pager, but yeah. the pager didn't go off. So it felt like somebody downloaded out shouting in my head as I'm talking to her, go to Lilydale now. It was so compulsory compulsory when mm -hmm. it was coming down through my head. Uh, in the middle of a sentence, I was talking to Charlie. I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I got to go. So I went directly to my car, got in the car, and drove to Lilydale. As soon as I get to Lilydale, it's Thursday afternoon, swarming with CBS, NBC, ABC. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, wow. they were looking for me. <sighs> so what had happened was, because I... I certainly didn't hide this from people in Lilydale and stuff. So when uh, the, when they set the press conference, they called the press that night, Wednesday night, after all this in the morning when I, when I chose to resign. And they said, yeah, get ready for a press conference on Monday because we have a worker in the emergency room who's HIV positive. We're going to send a letter and you know, have this on Monday. So one of the reporters at the Buffalo News said, that's Dr. Neil Zepkowski. He's positive. I know him. And it's got to be him because he works in the emergency room. Bingo. That, that went out on Associated Press mm -hmm. and the next morning. All the national news networks were there. Surprise. You know. And then I thought, well, geez, thank God I got that urge. It was overwhelming urge just leave right now so I was there and and thank God I went there because otherwise it looked like I was trying to hide something and mm -hmm. people were looking for me in Lilydale so I came in the gates and said what's this all about we're here looking for Neil I said I'm him so yeah. that next morning so the news conference that was Thursday the news conference got moved to Friday morning instead and it got out of New York. I was on the front page of the New York Times and all kinds of stuff. There's nothing like telling the world you're HIV positive and gay all at once. So, I mean, I knew this was coming out on Thursday morning, so I called my family, uncles and aunts, to let them know, hey, you're going to hear it from me first, but mm -hmm. you're going to hear it, the nation's going to hear it tomorrow. Just want you to know I'm HIV positive and gay. So, those, 
So, so disclosure. So anyway, so the news conference comes. Now you're the newscasters, right? Here sure. you are. Yeah. You know? So getting the story. Yeah. So it's a Friday morning news conference. President of the hospital gets up and makes a statement. You know, we just want to be careful and we respect the patients. We want to offer them. Uh, you know, we're doing what we feel is right. And then I, Dr. Zepkowski, get up to make my statement. I can assure you all that none of you were infected by me. If take the test, if you're positive, it wasn't me. I can help help you with that. Um, but uh, but um, I want to assure everybody that you're you're safe if you were cared for by me. So the president sits down, I sit down. Now it's open for questions from the press. You're the press. Are you, who are you going to ask the first question to, the president of the hospital or the doctor? Uh, doctor. The doctor. The doctor. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And what's your <laughs> Got that one right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And what's your question going to be? Oh, man. See, juicy, that's juicy. What's your question going to be? Well, doctor. How did you get it? I was yeah. just going to say. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you get right. it? How'd of you get course. It? Yeah. That's the first thing you ask. Doctor. We'll ask the doctor first. Doctor, how did you get it? So I said, well, I said, in 1983, we knew it was spread by blood and body fluids. I would bleed over my patients who were dying of AIDS, didn't use gloves. I started using gloves. I said, but far more likely, I wasn't worried about getting my boyfriends pregnant and wasn't using a condom, so I probably picked it up from gay sex. Silence. Oh, wow. I thought, yeah, they're going to edit this. It was live. Oh, my gosh. New York. Oh, wow. that, ended the, that ended the press conference. They, were, <laughs> that was the end of, they got all the news they wanted. Yeah. That was the end of the press conference. Wow, that was all they needed. Oh, my God. It went, out, it went out live to Western New York. You know, this it was a live broadcast, which I didn't know. But I shared right there, like openly, this is how I got it, you know? Taking your it's power like, no back. no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh my God. So, so that, of course, like I said, I made the front page of the New York Times over that, and of course all the new local news. Being gay was still very, very, well, from my understanding, very stigmatized still back oh, then. Oh, it still is, actually, I mean, but, yeah. but much more back yeah, then. Right. And on top of that, HIV still is, but right. much more back then. So, I mean, it was like, holy mackerel. Was that, was that like right around the same time that, uh, Magic Johnson was Magic Johnson coming out came with the out HIV. Five years later. Five years later. Five years later. I remember that as a kid, and and I remember watching something about like the people that played basketball with him didn't want to, you know, make contact oh, yeah. with him oh, on the court. And he was on the Olympic team, and uh, you know they were afraid his sweat, which is a body fluid technically, but it's not infectious. They were afraid his sweat was going to cause it. Mm -hmm. That was in '96. So there, were, so this happened to me in '91, which was even worse. You know, yeah. I mean the misunderstandings. So thank God for Magic. I was happy. <laughs> I was happy he came out uh, five years after I did. Um, so, uh, and and the interesting thing, the the president of the hospital and the lawyer said, you know, this is going to be tough on you. You know, your your name's going to be used. We're having the press conference. Uh, we suggest uh, you change your number and leave for two weeks to avoid all of the heat you're going to get. I said, no, you're you're projecting your fear on me. I'm not going to change my number or anything. So after that press conference, I got 600 supported calls during that time in the next few days. One obscene phone call from some guy in Erie whose oh. daughter I had looked in her ear. So oh, he, he was no. going to kill me. Oh, my God. And then one other call. But, but out of 600, two crazy calls. Yeah, mostly support. Never, That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. So, and then I ended up on Oprah over it. You were on Oprah? <laughs> I was on Oprah. What? I, did I had no oh. idea that you were on Oprah. <laughs> I was on Oprah. Yeah, yeah, that's another story. I mean, uh, <laughs> one of my exes who had uh, AIDS, 
wanted to go on a cruise in the fall to Alaska. So mm -hmm. I promised him to do that. He lived in Tacoma, Washington, so this cruise was leaving for Vancouver. So we got the cruise all set. I think it was September. We were going to have a September cruise. Well, the July news conference had passed, but Oprah was looking for people who had lost their jobs because they were HIV positive. They wanted to have a whole hour show on it. So they called me up and they said, will you be on our show? I said, well, it depends. I said, when is it? And they told me early, you know, beginning of September, I said, no. He said, why not? I said, because I, I've committed to a cruise with my friend. I'm going to go on that. Well, you know, if you change your mind, let us know and stuff like that. So I thought, nah. So they kept every day, have you changed your mind? No, I'm not <laughs> going to go on Oprah. So I got on the cruise. They called me from Vancouver the day the cruise left. Are you going, you know, have you changed your mind? We'll fly you back from Vancouver. I said, no. I said, it, I this is my friend who was dying of AIDS. I said, I'm not going to cancel. Mm -hmm. So, and he was very uptight about his own HIV status, which I have found people who do that, who have a chip on their shoulder or uptight about their status, don't usually last very long. Hmm. So I'm lasting. Um, he didn't. Anyway, so he was on the cruise there. And unbeknownst to me, Oprah changed the schedule. Oprah's managers, production managers, she has five of them. They changed the schedule so they would fit me in oh after the cruise. Wow. But they didn't. They they needed to, to verify that with me. So unbeknownst to me, they're looking for me on the cruise. So they call my parents up. Where's Neil? He's on a cruise to Alaska. Which one? Oh, I don't know. He's just on some boat in Alaska. <laughs> so then, they, then they called my neighbors in Lilydale. Where's Neil? He's on a cruise in Alaska. Which one? We don't know. We'll give you $250 if you tell us. No, we'd love, to we love the money, but we can't. Right. So they ended up looking at the guest list for every cruise going up to Alaska. Oprah that, was very persistent. Uh, she doesn't yeah. take no. Well, that was her, that was her producer. Yeah. They, anyway, so they found me. On Wednesday, now, my friend, who was very uptight, don't tell anybody about your positivity, because, you know, it had two months, had died down the news, so I was sort of incognito with him on the boat. It was a straight cruise. So <laughs> I was up on deck, so I walked down, and there's my roommate, who was very society conscious and uptight about HIV, mm -hmm. and he's like this in the room. I said, what's the matter? He says, Oprah called. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah called, <geez. laughs> <laughs> so the cruise ended in Anchorage. So Oprah ended up flying me from Anchorage to Chicago, and then the, the, the show was the next day. So I'm in the show and thinking, God, some of these people were on Medicaid from the emergency room in Dunkirk. There was mm -hmm. plants in the audience to see if they could heckle back then. But, um, and they gave me 15 minutes of the show all by myself, which is like unheard of. So, yeah. you know, and then wow. brought other people in. So, but it, it went well. I still have a tape of it. If you're interested, I'll get it to you. But it, it, was, it was a good show, you know, and I think I helped decrease some of the misunderstanding and stigma. And by the end, some of the plants in the audience were on this flight back to Dunkirk with me, and or Buffalo, actually. And so we sat next to each other and became yeah. friends, oh, even though cool. they, they tried to import the, the hecklers, you know. Hmm. So, so that's, a, that's a, an interesting story. I, I, think, I think it's cool no matter what it is that like, challenges us in life when we, when we own it and, and use it to empower the yes. way that you can just like win people over to positivity. That's one of my favorite things about humanity, really. Yeah. Yeah. When good information beats bad information or like yeah. when people, I, 
think that like today, especially with like all of the different ways that we are forced to, well, not forced to pe- communicate, but the way people are communicating with each other, it's so important now to still have an open dialogue, I think, and a, yeah. an ethical, proper, good dialogue. Yeah. So that way these wrong and false and Im- like offensive and hurtful opinions can be shown the light, hopefully. Yeah. through education, you know, through learning. And I like to think that the people that are harboring these negative thoughts and feelings are just not educated or ignorant, you know? Yeah, and and a lot of people with open minds realize, hey, you know, I was thinking one way, but I found out differently by talking. I mean, I I know I've uh, affected some people that way. I've gotten a lot of... uh, a support back then saying, you know, thank you for doing what you did. It, it makes me more comfortable with it, you know. So, and, uh, you know, I disclose that I make HIV positive to everyone, and of course, my sexual partners, but everybody, mm-hmm. you know. So, right. you know. Did Oprah change every, anything for you after going on that show? No, no, it just went out as it was taped. Yeah, there was that. And back then, Kimberly Regalis was on, or by, uh, by, a link and a bunch of other people so there was you know they tried to present everything in an hour but i had 15 minutes out of that hour which is like unheard of mm-hmm. so that was it was wonderful what about back home in new york with the hospitals and stuff like that brooks hospital was the only hospital i had trouble with i started working after that part-time with an hiv clinic actually at erie county medical center and uh and then expanded clinics, uh, rural, rural health clinics through ECMC in Olean, Dunkirk, and Jamestown. So I was, I never went back to full-time work after that, mm-hmm. but I was involved with HIV care from then. And then I got involved because part of the HIV care people that I had were not only gay, but a lot of them were straight IV drug users. So. Mm-hmm. There's a medicine that came out probably 15 years ago now called buprenorphine, and it's sub- brand Suboxone. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah, so Suboxone came out. So to help my HIV-positive IV users, I started giving them Suboxone. So back then you had to have a special course to be allowed to approve, you know, to prescribe Suboxone. But the nice thing different from a methadone clinic was a methadone clinic you have to go to daily during right. the week at least mm-hmm. if you're a good boy or girl you get a take home for the week weekend but with buprenorphine suboxone you can give a whole week or month mm-hmm. and even refills without having the patient come back so they can mm-hmm. have a life right rather yeah. than depending on a methadone clinic so i i started my hiv positive back then my hiv positive drug users on suboxone I retired from HIV care probably six, seven years ago now, but I still have straight people who are left, about 65 of them now that are opioid dependent, and I still see them um, fairly regularly to give Suboxone. I'll give them, right? I mean, they're rock solid, stable with lives, and, and they're not coming up dirty with urines for years. Most of these patients I have now are at least 10 years with me already. Right. So I give them a a month supply and three, you know, two refills, so a three month, so I see them every three months, Veritox screen, or I'll once in a while surprise them if I'm suspicious. But the people I have now are left over, so I'm sort of a very part-time doctor. Once a month I have a clinic, mm-hmm. and that's it, after being retired from HIV care and everything else. But Suboxone has really helped a lot of opioid-dependent Absolutely. people. Absolutely. It's, it's huge for a lot of people. And, and I know that in a lot of... 
I've seen a lot of people look down in because I'm in recovery as well. Oh yeah, and I know stick, talk about stigma for I mean, HIV positive, gay. Recovery all stigmatized, right? Oh yeah, and on Suboxone. Oh yeah, you're not really clean or whatever. However, yeah. they want oh, to yeah, approach that's it. That's it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Even I mean, even NA, you got to be really clean if you're not a sub. You know. Yeah. Although now they're sort of saying, okay, Suboxone, and actually. I mean, Go ahead. I think that a lot of people with any amount of clean time look at that with a level of respect now. Yeah, they do. Like There's people that changing. have seen it for a while, like, mm. I don't care what you're doing. You know what I mean? I'm glad that you're not using IV drugs or heroin and that your life is improving or meth or whatever oh, it yeah. is. You know, yeah. that's really the important part to me personally Oh yeah. about recovery is mm -hmm. you're making better life decisions. You know what yeah, I mean? You're absolutely. improving yourself. You're working, you're taking care of your family and your responsibilities and all that stuff. And if you have, you take Suboxone or you take methadone or whatever it is, I, uh, that doesn't make you any less or more clean or more recovered or anything like that than anybody else. It's like being on the bridge, like that metaphor between using and recovery and like people that yeah. get stuck on the bridge are really, you know, in my experience too, because I'm also in recovery, are really the, the only people I've encountered that really care that much about how another person is like uh, right. succeeding right. in life, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think a lot of ego gets involved too, like, oh, I'm actually clean and you're on Suboxone, you know what I mean? Right. I gave it up, so I'm right. better than you now. Yeah, I'll tell you, the people that give it up are few and far between, and so you can imagine that some of them would be snobbish about that, right. you know, but, uh, you know, it's, people don't, a couple of points, people don't realize that for 80% of people who are opioid dependent, it is a permanent neurobiological change. You cannot just give it up. You crave it like you crave air. If you don't have air for a minute, you really want air. <laughs> right. If you don't have opioids for a day, you really want it because you feel so awful without it. It's like, I, it's like grabbing for life. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that. I didn't realize that when I first started treating people, but I realize it now. A couple of interesting things. One important point. I've been doing this for 12, 13 years now. And in order to do it, you needed what's called an X number, a, a 2000 waiver. So it allows you, you said you've studied it, you're capable of giving it, you have a special number from the DEA so that you're allowed to give it. That requirement disappeared this month. Oh, really? Or in January. In January, you no longer need a waiver. Anybody. Anybody can give it. Used to be number limits, like you were limited to 30 patients the first year, then 100, then 270 if you were with a facility. The limits are off, and the waiver is off. So any prescriber, nurse practitioner, and if you can prescribe opiates for anything, you can prescribe Suboxone. That changed last month, so that's important to know. Do you think that's a good or a bad thing? It's a good thing because people will be able to find care, which before was like, you know, I mean, I had waiting lists and everything back then. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be easier to care, you know, for, for people to find care. Maybe there's a learning curve, and I know doctors, even though the, the waiver is lifted, that won't touch opioid-dependent patients because, frankly, to begin with, they're high maintenance to start with. <laughs> yeah, really are. Sure. Nobody wants yeah. to deal with it, you know. I've been through all that with most of my patients, but, you know, they're pretty much rock solid stable for the last 10 years, so I'm, I'm happy with yeah. that, you know. But that's one important thing. The other is to realize it is 
a permanent neurobiological change. It does not reverse. However, having said that, some of the, the f I have patients who are very motivated to get off this stuff, and they get down pretty low with it. They get to a, a minimal dose, but the lower you go on the dose, the more you start to crave it easier, mm -hmm. and the more you depend on your dose every day. You know, take something every so often because that's how addicts. I know it's time for my hit. Uh -huh. You know. But people who are motivated get down to a small dose, and then now we have an injectable uh, buprenorphine called Sublocade. Sublocade. Yeah. And with Sublocade, it's it's a liquid, but as soon as it gets under your skin, because it's, it's it goes under the skin into the fat, it forms like a jelly bean, mm -hmm. which then is very slowly released over over a month in the body. And the decrease is so slow during that month or two or three that the, the patients get over the habit of taking something as a hit every day. Mm -hmm. And it goes out so sneakily that after a couple of months, they realize they missed their shot and they're completely off of it. That's yeah. happened to several of my patients. That's amazing. So That's I'm awesome. very yeah. happy. And if they want to do that, fine. I'll give the Suboxone and, you know. The I, I've heard a lot of people having really positive results with Sublocade. And I know that a lot more clinics and rehabs and stuff are moving in that direction towards, yeah. you know, Sublocade over Suboxone. Yeah. I'm I'm sharing with my patients the six that I have. I have yet to have a failure on it, although I say, you know, look, if you want to come back and stay on it, that's fine, or go back on the pill if you find craving, but, you know, mm -hmm. if not, go for it. One person did get off without Sublocade by themselves. This was several years ago before Sublocade was out, and he was totally clean for two and a half years. He went to the dentist, got one Lortab for his tooth extraction, mm -hmm. and that one Lortab was all it took after two and a half years of being clean to get him right back where he started. Uh -huh. So he's still on Suboxone now. Even though he knows about Sublocade, he says, you know, I've been through all that. He says, I don't think right. I want to do that again. And, and if it's fine. making it simple and easy to get it with a 30-day script, yeah. then why not? Yeah. Um, but I do think it is really, really important early on to have that more strict you need accountability and observance. You know, maybe That's right. once a week or daily doses. Yeah, you need that to begin with, and you need more than just me. You need psychological oh, yeah. counseling and drug and alcohol. Twelve steps, all yeah, this stuff. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Yeah, people who don't really follow through with that really don't have very much success. Mm -hmm. So, although once you've been through it for a few years, then you pretty much are fine, you know, without it. Uh, most most of my patients, anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they'll go for, like, a touch-up when they need it, you know, to NA or, or counseling or whatever. Sure. But usually it's for other life crises by then, because they got the... Yeah, you got the, the job and the car and the girlfriend and yeah, all exactly. there, the boyfriend, whatever. Yeah. It is that, you know, you wanted as a member of society that yeah. you didn't have, that the drugs took away from you before. And uh, how did all your... Because... How did your spiritualism <laughs> and your yeah, connection? Yeah, you got you brought your tools here with us. We didn't even get to that. Yeah, we, I, we're, I, this I, is going to be a long one here, folks. Uh, so I don't in. know. I mean, you know, we don't have to. I mean, we have episode two if you want to. Yeah. Uh, well, I might I might break this up. We might have you back again. Whatever you want to do. No, um, it's up to you. Or you can break this. I mean, you can record it all at once. And then, oh yeah, we'll and just split it, it up in, in editing or yeah. however we want to do it. Okay. Um, so your spiritual practice has continued to grow throughout this whole time. When right. you were, when you were, when you resigned from the doctors or the hospital in Buffalo, did that kind of kickstart this for you? 
because you were already heavily involved. I was. You know, going back um, to when I was in college, going to those psychic development classes, which I talked about, my, my mentor, my spiritual guide, you could call her my teacher, was uh, a woman by the name of Penny Donovan. So Penny, Penny had a spiritualist church, and she was pastor of it. And when I went back to Schenectady, oh, that's another thing. <laughs> The psychic said, besides medical school, later or another reading said, you're going to end up as a doctor in Schenectady. I'm like, okay, you know, which you're, you're in this lottery of a, I wanted family practice. So I, I applied to six family practice, just like six medical schools, I applied to six family practice residency programs, some in Washington, state of Washington, Yakima, Washington, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Schenectady, Albany. Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls. Yeah, I was out there. I like that. You never, and so there's my close encounter with Native Americans, yeah. which never came about. But you know, so anyway, <laughs> almost. It was, almost. It was, it was, it was working was. towards that direction. Well, it, just it, didn't quite hit that in time. In fact, yeah. So I ended up in Schenectady again. So, so just for the people who don't know, Sioux Falls is uh, Lakota. Lakota Territory, Territory, South Dakota. It's yeah. where all of the DA pipeline protests occurred. and um, Well, those were a little bit north, yeah, on Standing Rock. But, yeah, Sioux Falls is, is right, right near that in area. area. Yeah, yeah, in that area, which used to be Lakota Territory. Sioux Territory, so Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so I ended up, um, where was I with that? So You ended up in Schenectady. I ended up you in Schenectady. You applied six places. And, yeah. um, I became assistant pastor of Trinity Temple of the Spirit, which is where my teacher was. And she, she is part Apache and mostly white, but a part Apache and, and very spiritually attuned. And she went to Bear Butte. Have you heard of Bear Butte, the sacred mountain of the Lakota Sioux and the Cheyenne hmm. up north of Sturgis? Most people have heard about the Sturgis motorcycle. Right, rally. yeah. Bear Butte is within sight of that. Um, it's a sacred mountain that's been used both by Lakota and Cheyenne Indians for, for centuries. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a famous medicine man called Frank Fool's Crow, but he got his power and his vision on Bear Butte. And a lot of people go to Bear Butte for spiritual reasons. So Penny was there, and she says to me, I went to Bear Butte. You can hear the ancestral voices. You can hear them singing, let's go climb Bear Butte if we ever get a chance. So the next year, we set out for Bear Butte. And I was in medical school at the time. So, uh, our residency, actually family practice residency, because that's where I ended up in, Sir, uh, in um, Schenectady. So family practice residency, took some time off, went with Penny to Bear Butte. Well, we did a pilgrimage. We went to the Medicine Wheel in Montana and did a couple other things. And the grand finale was Bear Butte. So we had a day, our last day, we climbed Bear Butte. We prayed there. And it was in September, end of September, 1990. And we were there. So in 1990, remember, I got forced to resign from the ER in 91. So we were there in 90. And we asked the ranger, because Penny was sort of into Native American stuff, and she knew there was a Native American ceremonial grounds on Bear Butte, which is a state park. So we asked the ranger, we said, hey, you know, can we go camp on the ceremonial grounds? You know, that would be so cool. The ranger said, yeah, there's nobody down there. The park is closing next week, because it was the end of September. So yeah, just go down, and she she gave us permission to do that. Didn't have to pay for the campgrounds or anything. Mm-hmm. So we went there, and there were fire pits and sweat lodge frames. And I'm going, oh, this must be with the sweat lodge. You know, I heard a little bit about it, but I wasn't really never did one. So I looked at these frames, and we sort of psyched out a campground, and we put the tent up, and it's dusk. Here comes a resmobile. We call them resmobiles. You know these rickety old, old beat up, trucks. Beat up yeah. trucks. Comes comes to the parking area. We could hear them. 
And then some people are getting out right near our campsite and building a fire. So I'm going, oh, Penny, we'll never get to sleep. We might as well join whoever it is. So we started, you know, there was uh, three, three adults and a couple of kids, you know, doing this fire. And I'm watching them take, make the fire. And we say, can we join you? Yeah, come on. So they're putting stones in the fire. I'm like, what, are you, what are you putting stones in this fire for? Said, <laughs> right, that's not how you start a fire. Yeah, well, we're going to have a sweat lodge. I said, oh, that ceremony I heard about. Yeah, you're welcome to come in. I thought, oh, this wow. is cool. So they yeah. brought blankets and they covered the sweat lodge frame. And it was I'll never because sweat first sweat lodges are memorable. Absolutely, mine was so. So there, and I'll never forget the names. There was Phil was outside keeping fire with his son, little son. Then there was um, Marshall and Merlin were their names in in the lodge. And I think it was Marshall's daughter was nine. Winona. So there they are in 1990 in this lodge. <coughs> so they do the lodge, and Marshall was teaching, no, Merlin was, Merle was teaching, Mar, yeah, Merle's daughter was Winona. Anyway, Merle was teaching Marshall the ceremonial songs. So I listened to this thing, God, this is like, this sounds familiar. This is like weird, you know, and I could feel the presence of spirits in the lodge being a medium already. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this is so cool. You know, so after the lodge, you know, they taught me, my first word was they taught me how to say that and, and to enter the lodge and all that. So I went through the lodge and I'm, the first door, I'm watching these red hot stones being brought into the lodge and I'm going, oh my God, I'm going to die in this lodge. <laughs> and, and this nine-year-old, but I thought, there's a nine-year-old in here, how can I do yeah, this? Yeah, I'll be okay. Fear, fear grips you. And, I, and they're pouring steam and she must have felt my fear because all of a sudden she pokes me and she says, lie down. So that was my first lesson in sweat lodge survival. Lie down. So you go downwards. Mm -hmm. Cooler, cooler so, air. So I made down. it through the lodge. And they left. And I never got their name or number, but I remembered their names. So, so that night, Penny and I are in the tent. And I'm tossing and turning. And the spirits came to me. And they said, OK, now you do lodges. And I'm going, uh, I did not get their name so they could, you know. <laughs> How am I going to learn this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't have, I, they're from Rosebud. I know they came up here, but I don't. I said, so I, I don't have a, a mentor. Spirit goes, we'll teach you. I said, you know, I said, you can talk to my mind a lot. And I know I'm a medium, but I don't trust myself that much to have you tell me how to do a lodge. So they say, well, we'll give you three books. I said, there's books on this? This is 90. This is 1990. There's books on this? Yeah, we'll give you three of them. So anyway, that, the next morning, Penny and I packed up, and we were getting ready to go to the airport. But we stopped at what's called a suit trading post on the way there. And there were books, all kinds of books. Three of them practically fell off the shelf. I mean, there were only three I could see. And they were all about swell lodge ceremonies, oh, oh my, including how to build one. So I bought these books. Went home, and uh, I'm at my house. I had, back then, I had 11 acres of land, which was pure. I had a garden there, and that was it, and, and a little hunting cabin. So the spirits said, you know, use this land. You have your sweat lodges here. And I'm going, oh, you know, I don't. You're talking in my head. I won't believe it. Is this I at mean, uh, the sweat lodges that you have now at Tio Mime? Yeah, this is home? how they came about. This is where I was. No sweat lodges in 1990. This was September was when I got this download at Bear Butte. <clears throat> so here it is October. 
And I go to the spirits, okay. I said, you know, why me? I said, I'm not even an Indian. You just do it. So I, <laughs> so I said, all right. I said, if you're serious about this, stop talking in my head. I need a physical sign that this is so. So I was walking around the property, and I just had a feeling to stop. And I, I looked around, and I could see in my mind's eye a circle of trees and lodges in the four directions facing a central fire. So I thought, well, that's an interesting thought. I had not, I mean, I was exposed to a couple of helter-skelter lodges at Bear Butte, but I never thought about four directions or a circle of trees or anything. So I said, okay, that's fine. You're talking in my mind again. I need a physical sign. So the next day I'm walking there and exactly where I saw the fire pit were two big great horned owl feathers. So I wow, that right in right where I was standing, I thought, well, you know, in the crow tradition, owls are bad medicine. So I said, you really will, you know, you really won't, don't want me to do this. If you're really serious about this, I need another sign. No. <laughs> so, so the next, honest to God, this is like, what are the chances? So the next day, exactly in the same place is a single hawk feather. There you go. So I'm thinking, well. Maybe three times is the chance. Uh, <laughs> so in my, just like when they said, get to Lidl now, I felt this yelling in my head. As I'm looking toward the west, the clouds are gathering. <laughs> and I heard them go, don't push us. <laughs> okay, okay, don't push you. I won't. So by end of October, I had a sweat lodge facing west because that was the lodge I was in when I was at Bear Butte. So I put my west lodge, and I didn't know any native songs. So I made up some English songs to fit a lodge. Knew it was four doors. So I, I had my prayers ready all in English. So I did my first sweat lodge in on I think, October 29th, 1990. And then the next year, I, I met Wallace Black Elk, who, who had a singer who gave me some songs to learn. So I learned some Lakota songs. And by the summer of 91, when I had been forced to resign from uh, the hospital. I was already doing sweat lodges at this one lodge I had. Plus, I had little little seedlings planted in a circle. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a circle of trees, which you know now is huge trees. Yeah, big trees. Um, so, but that was my first lodge, and I had this plan for 91. So in uh, July, when I, it was around the 21st, I had a, a lodge plan for a Saturday. Remember, remember all of this rigmarole with the hospital happened Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday early. So I had the Saturday lodge. I was going to do a sweat lodge. So the reporter from the New York Times says, you know, calls me up and said, you know, I want to interview on Saturday. I said, no. He said, why not? I said, I have a sweat lodge scheduled. Well, can I come interview you after the lodge? I said, yeah, you want to come interview? You can come to the, you know, sit outside the lodge, and when we're done, I'll interview you. So, or I'll, I'll, I'll let you interview me. So. So, um, so he did. He he was there. <laughs> so, uh, so on section B of the New York Times that Sunday, it was you know a little article of uh, the living section of New York Times about me doing a sweat lodge and coming in and <laughs> interviewing with this guy. It they was both, crazy. they must have loved that. Guy, that interviewer is like, this is gonna make my career. <laughs> this is either this is so odd. <laughs> yeah, doctor coming out of a nobody's sweat lodge. gonna believe this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was something. I still have a copy of that paper. So anyway, so yeah, so the Sweat Lodge made the New York Times as well <laughs> that nice. year. And then from there, you know, I learned songs and started doing more and more lodges, and I felt the spirits really. So basically, the spirits taught me how to do a lodge. And whenever I sit with you in a lodge, I always feel 
connected to the spirits and the songs. Like there might be songs where I might not know different parts, yeah. but when you're leading the ceremony, like all of a sudden, clarity. I know yeah. every every song, every word. Oh yeah. And when I'm on your land, it's really interesting because at Sundance, I'll share a lot of the teachings that you've had with me at the people dancing around the arbor. Like, oh, this means so and so, or this means you know this is what they're saying. I'll kind of translate it like you do with your songs. Yeah. And I can only do it there. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, it's like teaching. The, the spirits told me, listen, people need to learn these things. It's time. It's, the time is growing too short mm-hmm. now. So they need to learn these things. And so I learned them. And basically, the spirit sort of led me in ways that I learned the songs. And everything came together. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the feathers. I can't believe. I mean, what are the chances <laughs> right. of me arguing with spirit? I do that a lot. I argue. I mean, I get downloads from spirit, and I'm always arguing with them. So they have great patience with me, <laughs> I have to say. So yeah, so I got into sweat lodge ceremonies. And, and also with my mediumship, you know, I was talking about mental mediumship, how these downloads come in your mind. But I've always been fascinated with physical mediumship. Now, physical mediumship shows the action of spirits which everybody can see. So if you're in a lodge, sometimes everybody can see a light flash Mm -hmm. or or something happen or hear voices. Um, And it's the same with physical mediums. In a physical seance, everybody sees the spirit pick up a rattle, let's say, or pick up a spirit trumpet, which is like a megaphone, and they actually speak through it. You, you know, the voices come from the middle of the room or through a trumpet rather than through somebody in trance speaking, because mm-hmm. you can imitate spirits if you're in a trance. Although, you know, that also happens legitimately, but, you know, the doubter in me has to see it outside of the Of the human, person. yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've had, and, and again, I'm doubting, so I have to have seances in my house where I know there's no rigging, and right. I watch these voices come out of the middle of my <laughs> seance. They're, they're quite thinking. a thing, too. Oh, my God. And then, I mean, Warfield Moose is, is a medicine man. I, yeah, I think I, I went to a little wompy or a little weepy at your house with him. With Warfield? Uh, no. Well, well German Vinny, guy. Oh, the Ger- Vinny Nahr. He's Vinny, another one. That's yeah, it, Vinny. yeah. Yeah, Warfield is like Vinny on steroids. <laughs> so, I mean, the first time I was at Warfield's, I went all the way. I, I drove eight out, nine hours to New Jersey on the shore. He had a ceremony. I was going to check him out. And such incredible things. I mean, I'm a medium. I, I know this stuff. But to watch him do it, I thought, he's got to have tricks. He's got to have fiber optics going on or something. I won't believe it till I see him in my house yeah. where I can watch what they're doing. Have it controlled. I thought, I mean, he had tobacco ties around the altar, right? And within a minute, he has, the, okay, shut the lights off. You sit next to me. You sit next to me. And then they sang one song in the dark. Lights come on. All the tobacco ties in the room are in one big ball on their lap. And I'm going, son of a gun. He's got to have a spring-loaded thing here. I didn't, yeah. He didn't let us watch set up the altar. So I invite him to my house, and I'm watching him set up the altar with the tobacco ties, watching for the spring. Very carefully. There's no spring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, how the heck? And it took me, believe it or not, and I told him this. I, I said, you know, Warfield, it took me three UEPs before I gave up trying to figure, figure out how them. you had your yeah. tricks. The most amazing thing in my life happened three years ago now in May. Warfield was there. He did three UEPs in a row, you know, three nights of UEPs. 
and occasionally he'll let actually UEPs where they tie a guy up in a star quilt like mm -hmm. a mummy and they lay him down his hands are tied behind his back he's wrapped in the star quilt they lay him on a buffalo robe and uh, there are rattles about seven of them he has here which glow in the dark because if you hit quartz together in the dark it'll it'll spark so you can see where the rattles are because it glows through the through the um through the yeah and um Spirit also, so anyway, he's having the ceremony, and uh, that time he let me tie up next to him. Now he's 350 pounds, so he's in the buffalo robe, and I'm tied up next to him. I can, he's right next to me, so I can feel him, or usually see, feel him. So I tied up like he did, you know, I had my hands tied behind my back and the, the, the robe on me and all of that stuff, so I, I could hear what was going on and, and having been to a lot of weepies I knew what was going on so I could hear the drummers drumming singing the ceremonial songs I could hear the rattles going around the room I knew people were able to see spirit lights they look like lightning bugs flying around the room independent of the rattles so I could hear all that and, and the spirits will come in and they'll stomp on the floor so I heard that the house is locked the ceremony room is locked all of a sudden both doors to the ceremony room which is locked going, who the heck got in the house? I locked it. Boom, 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 boom. So I rolled over to Warfield to tell him somebody's gotten in the house. I rolled over and I rolled over and there was no Warfield. I'm <laughs> going, Warfield's missing. So I, I yelled out, Warfield isn't here, you know, stop the drumming. His spirit was knocking on one of the doors. He was knocking on the other. We opened the door that everybody came in and there's Warfield. Uh, 14 of us went, wow, Warfield. He got into my, they took, they, they left his, his uh, star quilt and his shirt there. So he was in his basically shorts, knocking on the door. The spirits took him from, through solid walls and put him in my kitchen. I, it's still like, that is the pinnacle thing I have ever witnessed in my life. People were there, still have trouble. I mean, the next day, a couple of the women were looking for a trap door. <laughs> well, and just, no trap just so door. everybody knows, like, these ties are like ties that you couldn't really get out of. Oh, yeah. I like, mean, you are these bound. people are like tied up for real that you could not, I could not untie myself from no. these types of ties. There's just, Although, you're just too bound up. Exactly. Although, here's what happened one time when I was, because Warfield's been coming to my house for many, many years. So one time, this is about five years, five years, six years ago, I was tied up next to him. Not, I don't tie up every time, but occasionally he'll, like if he's there for three ceremonies, he'll let me tie up one time. The nice thing about being tied up, the, nice, the not nice thing about it is you can't see the rattles doing anything or the spirit lights, but the nice thing is the spirits will approach you much closer. Uh, when when you're tied up, they'll speak. You'll hear, you'll feel their hand on your sh on your head, and they'll speak right into your ear. One of them even gave me a back massage once. Mm. One one Joaquin uh, Opmani walks with lightning. Actually, I, I feel myself the tie the the bindings around me. I feel these hands tightening them, and then he lifts me up. A spirit lifts mm. me up off the floor. I'm going, oh my god! But one time. Shiloh, his, his singer, tied my hands really tight. So, and, and the ceremony lasts about two and a half hours. So after the first hour, they were just aching and really hurting. So, and I speak a little Lakota, so I said, oh, Tunkashla, Nape Mayuza, Lila Mayuza, Omakyayo, which means my hands are really hurting, can you help? Inside the blanket materialized two hands and unknotted 
the knots. <laughs> the heck? Two hands. One guy, I remember one guy said, yeah, he said, you know, I went to your ceremony, or, or Warfield ceremony, and he said, this, the spirit handed me the rattle so I could rattle. And, and so I reached out just out of curiosity, and I felt the spirit's hand, and he said, and then there was nothing. <laughs> so it was just a hand that, from the spirits that materialized. So anyway, amazing. So that's physical. That's spirit working where everybody can see this. English mediums, German mediums I've had at my house do the same thing. So, so I brought some apports. These come out of thin air. So one time when Vinny was doing a ceremony, I heard this drop onto the floor. Mm-hmm. And as the, when the lights came on after the ceremony, Vinny said, the spirits gifted me this stone. And the stone's name is Ion Shechia, which means it was a white stone, but he said it needs to be painted red. So Ion Shechia means stone that's painted red. So here you can hold it. It's got healing vibrations in it. So it was a gift from spirit. And that was probably five or six years ago as well. So that's called an apport. An apport is something that shows up in a room which wasn't there to begin with. So natives do that. And then English mediums do that too. This is an apport that appeared when, Gary, when um, Warren Kaler was at my house, he's an English medium who does apports. And they, they'll either drop out of thin air, or they'll, a spirit likes to produce them from the back of their teeth for some reason. They come out, they're not wet, but they come out of their mouth somehow. This one just appeared on the floor, and we were told, we're going to give you a gift. So they gave this one. So this is a, an apport from Warren. And then there's bigger, I have a couple of bigger ones. Usually the apports that come out are small jewel-like things. So, Michael Shane is another physical medium. I see you and him, you and Aunt Lori and him, like do a lot of stuff together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so he produced this silver dollar, which came out of his mouth, and I got as a gift. Hmm. So, wow. of course, appropriate. It's a it's a commemorative, but of course, it has the Indian with the buffalo. And then uh, let's see this one. This one is kind of the same thing except it's copper. And that came from Bill Bolt, who's another physical medium. So these come out of their mouths, and, and sto- little stones usually. So all kinds of different things will appear which weren't in the room to begin with. Mm-hmm. And they're not plants. I mean, they're, they're dry out of their mouth. They're, and they're, this is after hours of sitting in, a, in the seance room. Then an interesting thing happened. When spirits act up, they have what I call a signature. So you know, like when Vinny spirits are there, they get bored during the ceremony and they start fiddling. If you have a suitcase in there, they'll start fiddling with the little knobs on the suitcase. So one time, Gary Mannion, who's an English physical medium, was doing a seance and I was there in Schenectady. And suddenly I hear the drawer pulls in the room going clackety, clackety, clackety. Gosh, Vinny spirits are here with Gary. And then another time, I felt a little lady and I felt a little pair of female hands. This is during one of Gary's seances. Feel a pair of female hands grab my hand, go like this, and put this in it. Hmm. Immediately I thought, this is Warfield's grandmother. Who, like, what's she doing in Gary's ceremony? Yeah. So there's a cross reaction. This is a, I call it, which means uh, the stone's heart. Because it's heart-shaped and there's a little, little smaller heart on it. Hmm. So that was a gift from... I think Warfield's grandmother. And spirits verified that that was who gave it to me. So I showed it to Warfield. He said, it's cool. The other thing, when Gary had a seance before this one, um, 
he was in Schenectady. There's, we had like a, we rented a place and there was a seance room. But in order to get to it, you had to go in a hallway through a little like galley kitchen into the seance room. So Gary's doing the seance. And across the galley kitchen out in the hallway, we hear this boom, 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 like somebody's moving furniture. And we go, there's nobody out there. What's that happening? So after the seance was done, we went into the kitchen, opened the kitchen door, and the, the, the exit was blocked because all the furniture was moved against the door. Hmm. We thought, and I thought, this smells like Warfield <laughs> spirits. So, so I, call, I said, I got to call Warfield. So I called Warfield f- cell. And there was no answer. His, his um, singer, Shiloh, picked up. He said, Shiloh, were Warfield spirits doing something last night in the ceremony room, piling up furniture? He says, well, I don't know. Vinny, or, um, Warfield's talking to one of the elders, and I'll see what he says. So he said, well, Warfield didn't have time to, to answer completely, but he said to share what happened in our seance yesterday. So he said, we had 80 people in Alberta, Canada at the seance. A lot of them were Christians. So as a joke, the spirits piled up furniture against the door to prevent them to leave. I said, oh, that's it. <laughs> so that was the same it. thing here. <laughs> so this is kind of mental mediumship gives evidence that we have a consciousness that survives death, like that husband who's told me that his wife had her his right. pants. But but physical weepies and, and lawampies and, and physical senses show that not only does spirit survive death, spirit can affect the physical world. And when Warfield entered the room after he been transported out of it. He said, you know, spirits didn't do that to show off. They came to prove that if they can do that, they can listen to your healing prayers and help you. That was the point of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like the point of this is to help people believe, faith, whatever, to, to grow and their knowledge to grow too. So, I mean, I had some amazing experiences. Right. And it all starts with just like that awareness and that openness to something else outside of ourselves. Uh, yeah. That uh, usually, at least for me, I feel like I always saw like signs and things that spirit was trying to tell me and I didn't listen for a long time. And now that I'm open to it, I see it for what it is. You know, God is all around us or the spirit or all is all around us all the time. And as long as we're able to accept that it is spirit doing these things then the more we'll be able to see it, or the more we do see it. Yes, and what part of it is our rational limitation. If you want spirit to tell you something, you're expecting them to to appear before you in a vision and speak to you in words that you can understand. Spirits don't work like that. Mm. They come with signs, like the feathers. Mm -hmm. And the feathers were so odd. Odd. I mean, the, the way they appeared and everything, it was beyond chance, mm-hmm. you know? Right, so and that's, that's how spirits, twice in a row, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and my barley green, I mean, that was like way you know, beyond chance. What are the chances to get a vision of barley and then two weeks later get somebody t- network marketing with barley green? Uh, and it helped me. So when spirit speaks, they don't speak in physical language appearing before you like they do in the movies mm-hmm. it's more of a sign like you said it's a sign and it's a it's a gut feeling and if you're questioning it usually a second sign will come as a confirmation just like the feathers mm-hmm. or the call from about barley I, I was kind of on the right track but that directed me even better you know so so once you go with the first sign and get a confirmation it's there's no denying it you got to follow 
the energy pattern there uh, if you want to evolve. And, and I've sort of been open-minded about that. And so I've been greatly blessed with all kinds of experiences, which I've just scratched the surface <laughs> on. Right. And that's incredible. I mean, I know personally, I've talked with Tony about this and uh, other guests we've had on the show. Like, in contrast to uh, Tony, I have a struggle with, like, grasping this spiritual stuff. But what I have found over the years is, um, like, I get a lot of stuff in my dreams, yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know, like spirit, I'll, spirit will speak to you in dreams. Absolutely. I had this weird one like a couple years ago. I had another weird one recently, but I won't get into that. I had a weird one a couple years ago where I was like real stressed with life. And uh, I woke up singing uh, with the, the tune Row, Row, Row Your Boat in my head. There you go. It's uh, a very spiritual tune. You know, and like it was just like I hadn't heard that. So it wasn't like I heard it on TV sure. or the radio. Yeah, I don't comes have out of the kids. Book. It's just, like, weird how that stuff happens. That's a psychic download. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, for our listeners, explain what the symbolism. Row your boat. You know? You know what it means, right? Mm -hmm. Your boat is your body. You row it gently. Downstream, don't fight the flow. Go with the flow. You know, row your boat gently. Life is but a dream. Mm -hmm. And uh, the real life is where the spirits are, and it's hard to believe it. Awesome. Yeah. One, you Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic time. I enjoyed thoroughly sitting down here and talking with you. Um, Thank you, everybody else who tuned in on uh, Spotify and YouTube. You guys are the best. And uh, let us know that you enjoyed this. Like it, share it, tell a friend, comment, let us know uh, what you think. Um, And you all have a great evening. We love you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Peace. 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 Blessings and joy.